It's November 19, 2010, at Pike River Underground Coal Mine in New Zealand. Daniel Duggan is working in the mine's surface control room, and on his calm he receives word that maintenance work has been completed and water can be restored to the mine. At 3.44pm he activates the start sequence for the pump system that supplies the water, and then he goes on the calm to communicate the news to those working underground. He says, Hello, ABM or Roadheader. Eight seconds later, Malcolm Campbell, who's easily recognisable because of his Scottish accent, responds. Campbell says, Hey, Dan, who are you looking for? Duggan says, I was just after ABM and Roadheader. Then there's an unidentified sound that interrupts the conversation. For the next four and a half minutes, Duggan continues to call the mine but gets no reply. He asks if there are any sparkies, meaning electricians, underground. Then he asks if anyone's at the monitor place. Finally, he asks if there's anyone underground. But all he hears is silence. This is the Brady Haywood Podcast, a show about failures and disasters. On the show, we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure, and we explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series about the Pike River disaster, one of New Zealand's worst mining incidents. In part one of the series, you'll hear about the immediate events that initiated the tragedy, as well as the attempts to mount a rescue. And in part two, we'll explore about the technical and organizational causes of the disaster. But first, we need to start at the beginning. We need to start on the afternoon of November 19, 2010. Russell Smith is late for work. He was meant to start his shift at 1pm, but he missed the bus to site. When he got to site, he found a juggernaut loader, drove it through the portal, which is the entrance to the mine, and now he's driving along the drift, a 23 kilometer long underground roadway that'll bring him into the main body of the mine. The time is 3.45pm. Then, out of nowhere... Russell Smith sees a bright flash of light and deafening noise, and he's slammed by a shockwave running out from deeper in the mine. The pressure wave doesn't decrease, it's maintained, and Smith is forced to sink lower in the loader to escape it. He notices he's having trouble breathing, and in this cramped position he tries to reach for his self-rescuer, a temporary breathing system he can use if the atmosphere becomes unbreathable. It's a canister that miners wear on their belt, and if Smith can pull it free from his belt and get it activated, he can breathe through its mouthpiece and give himself breathable air. But as he attempts to pull it free, he realises he can't. He's cramped so low in the loader he can't get it out of his belt. And then he blacks out. 
Meanwhile, another one of the miners, Daniel Rockhouse, is deep in the mine en route in a loader to pick up gravel for road repairs. He stops at the diesel bay at pit bottom and begins refueling the loader with diesel and water. The engine of the loader is running. The time is 3.45pm. He turns on the water valve and as he does so, there's a white flash and an extreme pressure blast hits him. He's flung on his back, hits his head, and his first thought is that the loader's blown up. But then he realises it's still running, so it couldn't have been it. He gets up and he turns it off. As he does so, he notices that debris has falling from the roof and from the ribs, which are the walls of the tunnel. Within seconds, the air is filled with a pungent smell and dense smoke is flowing towards him. The atmosphere is getting warmer and he's starting to find breathing difficult. He moves away from the smoke and walks towards a nearby crushing station. The air is clearer here. He reaches for a self-rescuer, pulls it from his belt, opens it and puts it on. And then he realises it's not working. So he gets rid of it and he moves back towards the loader. But now the atmosphere is getting worse and he's overcome by it. He falls over beside the loader. He shouts for help. His eyes are watering and his whole body is tingling. He thinks his body is shutting down on him. And then he loses consciousness. Up on the surface, Daniel Duggan is in the control room, still trying to re-establish comms with the mine. He's been doing this for four and a half minutes now and he's got no answer. And on top of this, alarms in the control room have been going off. They're telling Duggan that reporting from underground has ceased. The control room is receiving no data on power, ventilation, pump and gas data from the mine. And when power had been lost in the past, miners had quickly contacted the control room, but this wasn't happening now. Duggan has no idea what's happening. Duggan then puts in a call to Douglas White, the statutory mine manager for Pike River, and he tells them they've lost all comms and power to the mine. Then Rob Riddle, the engineering manager, and John Heads, a contract electrician, enter the control room and Duggan tells them about the power and comms issues. He says he's got a bad feeling about this. Duggan calls White again and asks should he call the mine rescue service, and White says no, not yet. Instead, White says to get someone up to the portal to see what's happening. A few minutes later, Riddle and Heads leave the control room, go to the car park outside the administration building, and White comes out to meet them. White notices a strange smell in the air, like excessive diesel exhaust fumes. White then goes back to his office to work on some emails, while Riddle goes to find someone to go to the portal to see what's happening in the mine. Riddle finds Matthias Stridham, an electrician, and explains that they've lost comms with the mine and asks him to go and investigate. Stridham wants to know if both power and comms are gone. Riddle replies that they are, and Stridham finds this really concerning. To him, with 28 years of mining experience, something bad has happened in the mine. So he goes to find a spare drift runner, a vehicle that's used to transport miners to and from the surface. 
Riddle and Heads then decide to go and investigate what's happening at the portal themselves. They drive there and arrive at 4.03pm. Meanwhile, Striden finds a McConnell Dow day crew who are contractors on site and they agree to give him their drift runner so he can enter the mine. As he's leaving, he says to the contractors, I hope this isn't bad. He arrives at the portal and finds Riddle and Heads already there. Heads tells Stridham that he's checked the portal substation to see if it had power, and it had. So there's power at the entrance to the mine. This means that the power outage must have happened at pit bottom, a 2.3 kilometer long journey underground from where Stridham is now. Riddle and Heads then leave to return to the admin area. And at 4.11pm, Stridham drives in through the portal not carrying a self-rescuer with him. Meanwhile, Douglas White, the statutory mine manager, has sent three emails, and at 4.04pm he leaves his office and arrives at the control room. Daniel Duggan says there's been no change in the situation, so White decides to go to the portal himself to see what's happening. He arrives there at 4.16pm, only five minutes after Stridham has gone underground to investigate. White uses the comms system at the portal and successfully calls the control room to confirm it's working. At this point, Riddle and Heads come back to the portal area. Then they both leave with White at 4.23pm. Underground... Matthias Stridham is travelling in his drift runner deeper into the mine. He's travelling along the main entry into the mine, the drift. And he just knows something doesn't feel right. They haven't heard from anyone underground since 3.45pm and now it's after 4pm. The mine has lost power on comms and the further he travels underground, the more disturbed he becomes by what he sees. Reflector sticks are missing from the conveyor belt infrastructure. Then he gets a cordite smell like diesel exhaust fumes. And as he drives further, the smell gets worse. And he notices other things are missing too, like they've been pulled off the walls, like signs that show the position of fire hoses. He's now 1.5 kilometers into the mine and he drives by the FAB, which is the Fresh Air Base. This is a shipping container that's been converted into a two-door sealable entrance that maintains a respirable atmosphere for miners in an emergency. Miners can retreat to it and survive for long periods. And now, as he's driving, the air starts to become thick. His vehicle starts to splutter, and then it starts to falter. This is not good. Stridham realises he needs to leave, and he starts looking for somewhere to turn around the drift runner. Then, in the distance, he sees a light. It's a juggernaut loader. He sees a figure lying on the road beside it. The figure is lying on their back with their arms outspread, with their head pointed towards the exit of the mine. Stridham knows that this is a position that people end up in when they've been hit by an explosion. But now Stridham is finding it really difficult to breathe, and the drift runner is spluttering badly. He realises he's in a very dangerous situation, and he fears for his life. He quickly puts the vehicle into neutral and lets it roll back down the drift. 
Then he's able to get the Drift Runner started again, and he reverses backwards, heading for the portal as fast as he can. And then he stops, and he thinks. He thinks about the figure on the road, and he thinks about going back to try and rescue them. But he remembers how hard it was to breed, and he is no self-rescuer. So he continues reversing out of the mine. There's nothing he can do. Then at about one kilometre from the portal, he finally finds somewhere he can reverse into. So he turns the drift runner around and drives towards the surface. At 4.25pm he reaches the portal and finds no one there. White, Riddle and Heads have just left. So he goes on the comms and contacts the control room, which is still manned by Daniel Duggan. Stridham tells Duggan, You better call the mine rescue. We've had an explosion. And I've just seen a man lying on his back in the road. Douglas White is in the control room at the time of this call. He agrees that something bad has happened in the mine. So Duggan begins to call emergency services. So at 4.26pm, Duggan calls Mine Rescue Services and explains what's happened. Then he dials 111 to speak to St. John Ambulance. He reports there's been a major underground incident, a possible explosion, and requests as much emergency help as they can possibly send. He then says there are between 25 and 30 people underground, and he hasn't heard from any of them for almost an hour. And then, at about 4.40pm, they get a call from the mine. Someone's alive. Deep underground, Daniel Rockhouse regains consciousness. He's been unconscious for about 50 minutes. As he comes around, he notices that he is feeling in his fingers and toes again. But he's cold and shivering. Then he realises he's cold because he's lying in mud beside his loader. He rolls over onto his stomach and tries to push himself up, but he can't. He has no strength. He tries again and manages to get to his feet, but he falls back again into the mud. He pulls himself to his feet again and grabs hold of compressed air and water lines that run along the wall. He searches for a valve on the airline and opens it, and fresh air flows from it and clears the smoke from around him. It also relieves the stinging in his eyes, and he sets out to look for a phone to contact the surface. After a few moments, he finds one and dials the emergency number 555. The phone rings, but no one picks up, and it connects him to an answering service. So he hangs up, and this time dials 410, the number for the control room. Daniel Duggan takes his call. The time is about 4.40pm, almost an hour after the explosion. As Rockhouse is talking to Duggan, Douglas White comes on the line and tells Rockhouse to get to the FAB, the Fresh Air Base, and contact them from there. Rockhouse hangs up. He starts following the compressed air and water lines. They will take him to the surface, which is almost two kilometres away. As he walks along in the darkness, he opens the compressed air valves and breathes from them. Then, up ahead, he sees a stationary vehicle in the drift. It's a juggernaut loader, 
And beside it, he sees a figure on its back, arms outspread. It's Russell Smith, who'd been late for work. Somehow he'd made his way out of the loader and ended up on the ground, and he is now semi-conscious. Rockhouse approaches Smith. His eyes are open, but they are rolled back in his head. He can hardly speak, and he has no helmet or light. Rockhouse pulls out Smith's self-rescuer and attempts to put it on him, but he can't get it inserted properly into Smith's mouth. So he drops it, stands up, and starts to drag Smith's body along the drift. It's still hard to breathe, and he's weak, but if he can just get to the FAB, he should be able to contact the surface. When they finally get to the FAB, Rockhouse props Smith up into a sitting position against the wall. He says he'll be back in a second, and he goes to the FAB. Rockhouse knows there'll be fresh air in it. It'll also have spare self-rescuers that they can use, and it'll have a phone. But when he actually finds the FAB, he discovers it's decommissioned. It's no longer supplied with compressed air, the telephone connection to the surface isn't working, and the spare self-rescuers have been removed. He's furious. He trashes around for a while, then walks back to Smith. He drags Smith along the ground, then pulls him to his feet. He asks if he can walk. They are still about 1.5 kilometers from the surface. As they start walking, Smith falls. Rockhouse gets him back to his feet, and with one hand supporting him, and the other hand running along the rail of the conveyor belt beside him for support, Rockhouse and Smith start walking towards the portal. As they go, they periodically stop to look back into the mine to check if they can see any other lights. But they see nothing but blackness behind them. They keep moving, and to motivate Smith, Rockhouse tells him to think about his family and to keep his legs moving for them. As they walk, the atmosphere starts to become clearer. It becomes easier to breathe. Natural ventilation is flowing into the mine. Then, they see daylight. It's streaming in through the portal. It's been 46 minutes since Rockhouse made the phone call. It's taken 46 minutes to walk out of the mine. And when they do walk out through the portal, despite the fact that Rockhouse had told them he was coming, there's no one there to meet them. They're alone. Rockhouse gets onto the comms and calls the control room, and help arrives within minutes. Both men are given oxygen, and Russell Smith is incoherent. Daniel Rockhouse simply breaks down. At 5.13pm, when Daniel Rockhouse and Russell Smith were still making their way to the surface, Douglas White, the statutory mine manager, had decided to investigate what was happening at the main ventilation shaft at the mine. This would involve a helicopter flight from the Pike River admin area to the top of the main shaft further up the mountain. This shaft plays a critical role in ventilating the mine. One of the main ventilation fans is located at the foot of the shaft, deep in the mine, and there's a secondary fan at the top of the shaft. The helicopter takes off and climbs up over the trees, heading for a position where White can get a clearer view of the top of the vent shaft. And when he sees it, there's clear evidence of a massive underground explosion. The secondary fan is damaged and there's smoke in the air. By 5.30 that evening, the emergency response at Pike River was well underway. 
At this point, the Pike River CEO, Peter Whittle, based in Wellington, had been called and told there had been a major event. The police, the New Zealand Fire Service and the Mine Rescue Service were on site. St John Ambulance were en route or at the mine. Help from overseas would arrive over the next few days. But it was only the next morning, Saturday morning, when they determined how many men were missing. 16 Pike River workers and 13 contractors. A total of 29 people were unaccounted for and nothing had been heard from them since 3.45pm the previous day. But before any kind of rescue could be mounted, before anyone could go on the ground, they needed to work out what the atmosphere was in the mine and the likelihood of further explosions. Now, they obviously knew there'd been an explosion the day before. They had video evidence of it now. A CCTV camera located at the portal had captured it. It showed a violent pressure wave, almost like a windstorm rushing through the portal, buffeting attachments. It had started at 3.45pm and it had lasted for 52 seconds. This was the sustained pressure wave that Russell Smith had experienced. In time, the investigation would identify that this was a methane gas explosion. And before anyone went back into the mine, they needed to work out where the current methane levels were at pit bottom. But working out the level of methane deep in the mine would prove a massive challenge. All of the methane sensors in the mine had ceased reporting at the time of the explosion, and there was no backup system underground. So for the first five days following the incident, samples had to be taken at the top of the ventilation shaft, but these weren't representative of the methane levels deep in the mine. To solve this issue, they were drilling a borehole into the mine, and they could sample from this. But even if they were able to determine the methane levels, there was very little they could do about them if they were high. It was no longer possible, because of the explosion, to ventilate the mine. The fans were knocked out. And we'll talk a lot about this in the next episode. So here we have a mine with an unknown level of methane, with no ventilation and no way to ventilate it, and 29 people are still missing. Then on the 24th of November, five days after the explosion, the sampling borehole reached the heart of the mine. And samples indicated that because of the atmosphere in the mine, it was not safe to send rescue teams in. And it was also on the 24th of November that all hope of rescuing the men would be lost. At 2.37pm that afternoon, there was a second explosion. And the experts on site all agreed that no one could have survived it. If any of the 29 missing men had survived the first explosion, which was doubtful, there was no way they could have survived the second. They'd perished. And the families would receive this news at a press conference that would go horrifically wrong. It began when they were advised by text message that there'd be a significant update at the 4.30 briefing that day. When the press conference began, 500 people attended, including young children. Peter Whittle, the chief executive, inexplicably talked about the borehole and said that the gas levels had shown improvement and that the mine rescue service were preparing to go into the mine. And when the families heard this, there was an outburst of excitement and hope. They cheered and clapped. Then, 
Whittle motioned for silence. And then he told them about the second explosion. He explained that it was not survivable. He said things had now moved to the recovery stage. And with this news, the families became incredibly distressed. People began to wail and sob. And over the days that followed, the mine would explode a further two times. And the decision was made to seal it. At the time of writing, more than 10 years after the disaster, and after a number of failed attempts to recover the bodies, the 29 men still remain where they fell in November 2010. In part two of Pike River, we look at how all this happened. You've been listening to the Brady Haywood Podcast, where we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure and explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Join me on the first of each month for our next episode. So you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the show on your podcast app now. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood, farm that specializes in forensic engineering and the investigation of incidents, defects and failures in the mining and construction sectors. If you'd like to speak to us, you can find more information on our website, bradyhaywood.com.au. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Thanks for listening.